This is Eastman's Elevated Podcast. I have on great guests that are really knowledgeable, consistently successful. We're able to dive deep down the rabbit holes of these different subject matters of shooting, of physical fitness, of mental toughness and drive. All the different skills that make up a complete hunter that you can become. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Hey, what's happening, guys? Got a brand new Eastman's Elevated for you. So on today's podcast, I have on Ethan Eskrib. So I met Ethan. He'd killed this giant muley buck this year. And so I hit him up to be on the podcast, and I'm really glad I did. So uh, I killed this mule deer, uh, this giant buck. And so we get to hear the story about that buck. But also Ethan brings this intelligent approach to hunting western game. So he comes from a whitetail background but has committed himself to hunting these mule deer the last handful of years. And He's just got great insight into hunting these mule deer, into patience, and um, so we just had this this great back and forth, great conversation all about this deer and hunting mule deer in this uh, early season, which also applies to the mid and late season as well. So uh, it's a great conversation. We'll get right into it. I just want to thank a couple sponsors. I want to thank Sig Sauer Optics. I'm so impressed by Sig Sauer Optics. So you guys have heard me talk about the Zulu 6s, which are the image-stabilizing binos. Uh, I really like the 12x42s, and I also like the 16x42s. These things are a game-changer. They stabilize the image that you're looking at, uh, which means you can see more detail. So I've been using these things. I really like them. Uh, The new piece of glass that I just got... Uh, Six Hour went through and redesigned their binos, so these are going to be their Zulu 10s. Uh, man, you talk about high-end glass. These things are such a joy to look through. Uh, it's got edge-to-edge clarity of image, great light-gathering capabilities. Like, this R&D team have outdone themselves. Like, these things are amazing. So, uh, right now I'm checking out the 10x42s, which I really like for a chest rig. And then also checking out the 15 by 56s, which I'll tripod up. And you just can't beat the 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 high-end glass to look through, man. It's just an absolute joy. So if you're in the market for some new binos, uh, just compare these to some other brands out there. Uh, take a look through them. I guarantee you won't be disappointed. Again, those are the Zulu 10s. I also think they build the best rangefinders on the market. I'm using a Kilo uh, 5K. And uh, these things, man, like a better rangefinder makes you a better bow hunter. Like they get the same ranges on light and dark targets. It's got a powerful laser to be able to shoot through grass. I just tested it the other day through fog, and it shot through fog flawlessly. Uh, It's got a a mode in it where you can put in the speed of your bow to get the exact cut because everybody has different speeds to their bow, which makes the cut different downhill. And this has made me highly accurate at shooting like high country mule deer. I killed a buck last year down a 50 degree slope. Um, So it just gives me the exact range and the exact hold I need. I really think this rangefinder makes me a better bow hunter, and I I think it's the best one on the market. So uh, if you're in the market for a new rangefinder, make sure to check them out or any of their new glass over there at Sig Sauer Optics. I also want to thank OnX. Dylan's one of my buddies over there at OnX. I just saw that he killed another great bull this year, so congrats to him. But OnX changes the way that I scout and hunt. I use this app nonstop. 
Uh, so I use it in the evenings for my scouting and then all my scouting data, whether it's done on my computer or on my phone, uh, I have it all when I get to that unit. And so much a, of scouting I do in real time as well as I get there and I start finding animals and I start looking for a similar habitat uh, where I can find more animals with the same slope or uh, with the same big canyons or finding places like this year, uh, places away from roads and accesses has been really good to me. And so I really use Onyx for a lot of this. You can uh, save or catch your map. So even if you don't have service, you'll have your maps there and your GPS will work. I use it for a ton of navigation, keeping myself safe, and then also all my scouting and hunting. So, uh, yeah, if uh, you haven't heard of Onyx or been using it, you live under a rock. It's just a, a great program, and I use it for all 50 states. So make sure to check them out over at Onyx. I also want to thank Black Ovis. Black Ovis is an internet retail shop that has absolutely everything you need for your next hunt. Uh, they carry all the top name brands as well as their own name brand. And we have a discount code where you can save 10%. So 10% is a huge savings off your order. Uh, just put in the promo code ELEVATED10 and you'll get that 10% off. There's also a way you can save 20%. So uh, if you're Elite Tag Hub member, which means uh, you're a, a member of Tag Hub, uh, which Tag Hub now we have a mapping system. Uh, we've revamped. Like uh, it's a really good system for learning these different units in different states. I know I'll be using it a ton as we come into application season. But if you're an elite member, you get that. You get both magazines, and then um, basically that'll get you 20% off of Black Ovis. Uh, so you can check that out. Uh, so thanks to those guys. Also, thanks to Camo Fire. Again, Camo Fire is an app where you can save a pile of money on some great hunting deals that come up. Uh, you can check them out, download the app, 80 new hunting deals every 24 hours. So thanks to those guys. Uh, over there at um, Eastman's, again, you can check out that Tag Hub. That promo code Brian will save you a little bit of money off that. Uh, we've got the Mule Deer course. If you've got a Mule Deer hunt coming up or wanting to brush up on hunting Mule Deer, just enter the promo code BrianMDC. That'll save you 10%, and it'll get you a MagView uh, Digiscope adjusting kit. So uh, I think last podcast I had mentioned the Kill Kit, and um, I think we've ran out of those. So now it's just the MagView that you get and 10% off. It's like $90 for the Mule Deer course. Absolutely everything I've learned about hunting mule deer in the last 25 years, being able to travel and hunt them in different seasons, uh, different habitats, so you can check that out. And with that, let's get into this podcast with Ethan, man. It's a great one. Really enjoyed the conversation, and um, I always pick up some tidbits from these smart muley hunters, and congrats again to him and just a giant mule deer. Make sure to go check out his Instagram and check out that buck. Uh, thing's an absolute giant, so... Um, all right, let's get into the podcast. I'm your host, Brian Barney, Eastman's Elevated, and here we go. The difference in species as well, like how different they are. Like I'm interested to hear you talk about the differences between whitetail and muleys. Yeah, yeah, and there are some similarities. I just I just feel like there's a lot of big differences that, and I obviously have far, far more experience with the whitetails. Um, the mule deer, you know, I've got... I'm, I'm starting to get some experience under my belt with them and there's a lot of, there are some similarities, but definitely some differences. The mule deer, I've heard you say it before and I've heard other guys is like mule deer, just where you find them. I mean, there's some trends. Um, and I think whitetail, you can trend far more 
in my experience so far. Mule deer, it's just like you just got to find them where they are and hunt them where they are. And like I said, there's some trends, but in it to help you find them, but they're not as trendable in my in my opinion and my experience. Well, um, so true. It's like with any of these species and all these species have so many differences, like hunting different species in different habitats, like improves your skill sets in different ways. So, you know, we were talking like before I hit record and talking about the differences and similarities, but the, the killing them seems similar. But I like the point that you're making, like finding muleys where they are. It seems like it's that way with almost all species that we hunt, whether it's whitetails or muleys or elk, like you find tendencies and places that you like, but ultimately like you just have to go out and find them. And in every different season, like with different conditions and uh, weather patterns, they can just be in different places. And so it seems like that's a big part of the challenge uh, of bow hunting in general, especially Western bow hunting is just like finding where the animals are. Like, so uh just um uh, to give context like so you're a few years into your muley journey and just absolutely killed a giant this year man congratulations what a buck yeah thank you it's definitely um i don't want to say a buck of a lifetime by any means but but it it felt like it in the moment you know (laughs) um it just felt like so much hard work just came to fruition in a way that i couldn't have even writ up if i tried i mean it was it was truly one of the most surreal moments um, I've had, you know, in the field for any species. And I really appreciate it a lot, Brian. Well, yeah, and it, it is a buck of a lifetime, but there's no rule that says that you can't kill another one like it. You know, it's like uh, the, the journey continues and it, you know, some guys, they kill a big buck or a big bull and that's like it for their journey. They check that one off their list. I think you're similar to me to where when you kill a big buck, like you, now you want to go do it again or solve the puzzle again or climb the mountain again. Yeah. As soon as, you know, I, I got done with the pack out and it was, it was kind of a rough pack out. Um, and you know, I was driving down off the mountain and the hunt itself was quick, but I was driving off the mountain and you know, I was riding that high, but at the same time, I'm like, man, I just want to get back on the mountain and find another, you know? And it's like, as soon as it's like, I'm still driving off the mountain. It's just, and I think that comes from, I think that, I think that comes from loving the hunt itself more than the kill or, or even the individual buck. Um, and that's definitely how I view myself as a hunter is just the, the journey, I guess the hunt itself is what I love the most. So I think that's where that comes from is always wanting to go to the next one because then you're back hunting. I think you're right. Uh, the fun is in the journey. The fun is in doing it. And it is bittersweet. Like we harvest a good animal and we're really happy for the harvest. And it's like this magical encounter and it all comes together. But there's also a bit of sadness that it's all over. Like that is the hunt and that uh, we have to wait another year for. But yeah, man, uh, what an absolute stud of a buck. So like in in your journey, like you have a lot of bow hunting experience, but only a few years hunting mule deer. Don't you think like finding them consistently, finding those quality bucks consistently is like a big part of the challenge? Yeah, definitely. And I think, I think that, you know, just in the, the short handful of years that I've been hunting them, I've seen a very big jump in the learning curve for me personally. Um, and that just comes from relating personal experience. You know, 
when I started, I dove very, very heavy into the research side of things, you know, listening to this podcast, basically every mule deer podcast I could think of talking to guys, reading articles and just dove head first into it. So I went into the field that first year with knowledge, but no experience. And what I think happened there was I, I got into good areas but if I didn't find a buck right away, I lost the confidence in the area. Whereas now, after a handful of years of experience, I have the confidence and, and I'm starting just on the verge of starting to grow that instinct as to do I stay in this area and maybe glass longer? Or maybe do I stay in this area, but I start looking into tiny little folds that take a lot of effort or maybe time to look into? Or do I vacate and go to new country you know what i mean where when you first start you just don't have that experience or that kind of gut feeling and i've developed that gut feeling on whitetails for years and years and years and i feel very confident in that now so when i transitioned to starting to hunt muleys i was kind of at a loss for maybe the first year or two or three where it's like you don't have that instinct but you i'm quickly developing it i can feel it you know what i mean like now on this hunt it was a i could feel that gut kick in and it was a familiar feeling that i felt with whitetails for years and now it's a, it's a good feeling to start to develop that with a secondary species um, if that makes any sense oh it makes complete sense ethan yeah it's like um yeah it seems like when we're first starting out or a new endeavor or a new environment like it's easy to second guess things and decisions and choices and you know it, it it's not just laid out like a textbook like you stay at this vantage point for this many hours and then you move to this vantage point it's just not black and white it's such a gray area where you do have to make these decisions based on these gut feelings or on these instincts and and not that the knowledge that you accrued was bad, like listening to podcasts, but I love how you like put it in the context of like being able to transition that with the experience. So it's being able to use that knowledge and then apply it to your own experiences to be able to create these gut instincts and feelings of, of when to move, when to find a new vantage point, when you feel there's still bucks in the basin that you haven't seen. Or I, I also like when you, when you discuss like looking in these, these small little folds, these bucks can just hang in the smallest little fold. And so not every master vantage point shows that off. Sometimes you have to burn a morning or an evening just in one little tiny drainage to see if those bucks are in there. Right. Right. And that's, and, and sometimes you burn that whole morning and you get over there and you're looking at a tiny area and there's nothing to be seen, you know, and then, and then you start second guessing and say, well, should I have came over here? But, but those failures, play into developing your gut just as much, if not more than the successes, successes, meaning finding bucks, you know, in the, within the context of what we're talking about, because just as likely you can devote that morning or a day or, or whatever allotment of time and look into one of these tiny folds. And now you might find a big deer that's nobody else is looking at, you know, so it's, it's a, it's kind of a double-edged sword and you just have to, develop that instinct as to when to grab it you know what i mean man that's so it yeah and um these little folds too 
like, man, it doesn't have to be 10 miles back to be a little fold that holds bucks. Like, I found a good group of bucks and some giants this year that were hanging off the side of a trail, you know, like a couple miles back from a trailhead. But the trail, it just filtered everybody right by this drainage and by this basin where you couldn't really glass it. And to glass it, you know, I had to come in from another trailhead that was quite a few miles in, but just to grab the right vantage point on it. But once I found it... You know, there was a bunch of bucks hanging in there, and there was, you know, I'm sure there was guys hiking by them all season long. Like, these folds, I, I feel like a lot of these folds, like, these, these mule deer have such keen instincts. Like, they get to know where they're getting pressured and where guys are getting stocks on them, and then they find these folds or these basins where they don't get stocked or they don't get pressured, and then that's where they kind of end up. So it seems a lot of these places are not easy to glass not easy to get to, whether they're off trail or out of the way, uh, but that extra effort. And like you say, a lot of times you go over and you don't find them in a fold or one that you do think you will, but it, it just takes that one to hold those bucks and have a place that they can survive in. And there's like a lot of other tricks to it too is like i know you know i glass for trails a lot now trails can be cattle trails they can be goat trails or they can be muley trails or when you get in a good basin it seems like you start finding these historic beds in there where these bucks have bedded for a hundred years where they start to shape out these beds like there's clues to it that if you can really key into you can start to kind of find them before you even see them yeah, that's a really good point, Brian. And that's something that I actually haven't done yet is is trying to key in on the trails themselves. And I think for me, that probably comes from, like you said, it could be muley trails. It could be sheep or goat trails. You know, um, that's that's a good point, something I haven't thought about. I have paid attention to the beds, though, because like you said, you know, I went I went and looked at the bed that my buck came out of after I shot him. And that's one of those beds that it's been there a long, long time. And you would have to be in the bed with him to actually see him laying there. It's just, it's one of those absolutely perfect, you know, uh, just on the uphill side of, of two small pine trees with willows that wrap around the rest of the bed. And then you have to actually kind of go through the willows. And once you're in there, it's just this five foot circle that's perfectly level and just, perfect deer bed um and i kind of looked after the fact i looked around the area right there and there's this little scattered area that's maybe a hundred yard radius if that and i found you know quite a few beds like that or similar and that's you know that that doesn't come from one buck being in that basin one year you know that comes from generations of bucks using that same micro area not just basin but that same micro area and then there's really something to that and that's i paid attention to that very heavily because whitetail do that a lot where you'll find historic bedding areas and one buck you may kill a mature buck using this bedding area and the next year or the year after you'll find another mature buck move into that area and almost repeat the tendencies that the one you killed before was exhibiting and now you already did it once on another buck. You're you got you've got two steps into the race already when that next buck shows up. And I'm this is the only area that I've killed a mule deer out of that I feel like I could potentially apply that to in the future. So that's exciting. Oh, 100%. Yeah, you're on to something like um 
Yeah, these these bucks have like these bucky basins that they just like that they return to, and you kill a good buck out of them, and it may take another handful of years for another good buck to grow up. But uh, yeah, I know I've hunted bucks in basins that I've killed really good ones and go back in a few years and there's another group of bucks hanging in there. I also find like the way they interact with like that high country and things like they can have different tendencies and personalities. And so some of these bucks, it it seems like the bucks have a network of beds and feeding features that they'll use in the mountains and they'll definitely repeat beds. But I find that they have like, you know, three or four or five areas in that drainage or in two or three drainages that they'll use. And they tend not to go back to the exact same bed and feed the exact same meadow day in, day out. Now that changes like some bucks do. There are some bucks that just live in a hundred yard area that use that one bed and that one feeding feature. But it seems like the majority of them to me have like a network. So they have like a core area, but they'll feed this steep slope and they'll bed in these um you know small group of stunted trees one day and then the next day they kind of move on to like another little feeding feature and bedding area and they'll kind of have three four five of these areas that they kind of use did you see that with that buck that you harvested or have enough time to watch him to see if he was using different areas or did you feel like he was using that one core area so this buck and and the other bucks he was with the bachelor group was was almost a hybrid of the two of, of, of what you're saying, where no, he didn't use the same bed or the same micro area twice for four days that I know of in a row. He used the same basin to, to bed and even the same um, side of the basin, like the same aspect every day but this was a a mile long ridge and he he bedded at a different area of the ridge every day um and some of the areas all of them looked good you know he never bedded in a spot that i thought was just an off the wall day everywhere he bedded i was i was thinking he has laid there a lot of times before and he would feed out of that basin at night i know that um but he would come back to you know that basin to feed and i've i've seen other bucks before in past hunts do similar things but i might watch him bed on that hillside for one or two days and then don't see him come back for the next five days where it's just very random and that's why when i was watching this buck continuously come back to the same aspect the same ridge um i was like i feel like this buck is a little more homebody than a lot of the bucks that I've glassed before, um, which I think is what ended up being his demise because I anticipated where he was going to be. And the luck was just on my side because the fact that the hillside that he preferred was extremely stockable. Um, you know, there was a lot of areas he could bed that was really stockable and that just played in my favor huge. But I, like I said, I've also seen bucks that, you see him once, maybe twice, and never see him again for the rest of a hunt. And, uh, you know, I was on a really big deer last year. I glassed him two two days prior to the opener, bed in a very small, tight micro area, feed on the same feature, and, you know, two mornings, two evenings, and then hunted for seven days into season 
and never saw that buck again. And I couldn't turn him up anywhere else. So I don't, I still don't know where he went, but yeah, it's funny. You know, they're, they just, like you said, their, their personalities seem to all be different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, man, maybe run me through that, that hunt and finding this buck. Did you find him during scouting or during season? And then, um, yeah, run me through the hunt. I'd love to hear the story. Yeah. So I wasn't able to go out, um, as a dedicated scouting season. I really wanted to, but it just wasn't in the cards for the summer. So I decided to go in, um, a little early for scouting. Um, so I ended up getting in there. I got there two days before the opener and started scouting the day before the opener. So I found this buck the evening. Is this, sorry to interrupt, Ethan, is this country that you're familiar with that you've hunted before? No, this was an entirely new unit to me, um, entirely new. So when I showed up, cool. it was 100% e-scouting. Um, I had very, very little intel from some guys that I knew that had hunted it before. And quite frankly, the intel that I had was not good. So that was, um, you know, I don't want to say intimidating. It was more so all information is helpful, right? So whether it's good or bad. So the information that I did have, as limited as, as it was, it just gave me a little bit more of an idea. And and basically, these guys had a, an extremely hard time um, turning up older bucks. And, and, and they're good hunters, so... I knew going into it that my plan was just going to be, I have to cover country, maybe more so than I would on an, on another hunt or another unit. If, if if this is the experience that I know multiple other good hunters are having, then I need to go in this, into this with the mentality to really cover country because I might, I might not just be missing a buck that's there. There might not be a buck there. So I just need to really put miles on the legs to try to find a good buck. So that's, that's what I went into this hunt with as my mentality. Um, so I got there, uh, I got to the trailhead the evening of two days before the opener, um, drove out there. So I slept at the trailhead just to kind of try to adjust to the elevation a little bit. Um, the next day packed in, set up camp and started, started scouting and uh, checked a handful of basins. And I turned this buck up for the first time the evening before the opener, um, which was Friday. So turned him up the evening before the opener, watched where he was bedded, watched where he was shooting. He was, uh, or feeding, I mean, feeding in a extremely steep avalanche shoot, um, Left that basin pretty confident that I was the only hunter on him. Um, there was a lot, there was recreationalists in the area and there was a lot of elk pressure, but not where this buck was. I'm talking the, a big general area. So I went back the next morning and got set up on a, um, on a vantage that I felt I could still see him, but I was a little bit closer because where I had glassed him from, the evening prior was from a master vantage where I could just see miles and miles in multiple directions. So I made a play to get a little closer to him and um, relocated him in, in the rest of the bachelor group in the same avalanche shoot the next morning. So they hadn't moved, which gave me a lot of confidence that they would bed at least somewhere in that basin that day. And they did, but they bedded in a, a terrible spot opening day. Um, there was this big bench on the mountainside, super steep, but there's this one 
fairly flat bench and they bedded there kind of in a, a little cluster of pines and all three bucks were looking all three directions. And on top of that, that day was fairly stormy. Um, so lots of clouds rolling in a lot of weird temperature fluctuations, you know, 75 and then 45 and oh, here's some hail and then just all over the map. So I knew that, you know, they're bedded looking everywhere. The wind's going everywhere. This is a terrible day to make a play on these bucks. And so I elected to just hold back and, and not make a play. And then the story gets interesting because I look up and there's a hunter circling the basin and I couldn't tell if he was elk hunting or deer hunting, but he ended up, he ended up setting up about 400 yards out from these bucks and glassing down in there. And I thought for sure he was going to go make a play and, and just blow them out. Well, he hung back for about an hour and a half, just glassing down there. And my mentality was he's trying to find them because where they bedded was really hard to actually see where they bedded because it was kind of on that line of the timber. So I knew that there was no way of getting down in there. So he hung back for like an hour and a half and didn't move at all. So I circled the basin and I was going to go show him just where, not cut in front of him or anything, but just say, Hey, I know exactly where they're bedded. Um, if you're trying to find them, this is where they are. These are the conditions. If you want to make the play, go ahead. But I know where they're at and it's not a great spot. So I went over, um, ended up talking to the guy and he was like, yeah, no, you know, that's the buck we're hunting and, and we're not going in because it's a bad play. So they hung back for the same reasons I was. Um, so we ended up talking and we were like, this is a great basin, great stockable ridge line. And this was the most cordial interaction I've ever had with another hunter. And, and I, I haven't ran into a lot of like bad guys or anything, but we were just like, let's work together to get this buck killed in a sense. Um, and so this was Saturday and I said, Hey man, you, you circled the basin first. Um, if the winds get better or they rebed or something, 100% you go in and, and I'm not going to cut in front of you. Don't worry about any pressure from me. This is all you. And he said, okay, well, I, he doesn't hunt on Sundays for his personal beliefs. So we kind of said, then I can have a go at him Sunday. He can have a go at him Monday. So it was kind of a very unique situation where we knew that this buck was super killable and and instead of trying to kind of race in front of each other in this mad dash scramble like combat bow hunting style trying to get this buck then we were okay with taking the back seat to each other on, on you know on alternating days until we got a chance at the buck um cuz the buck was special you know and we both recognized that so we agreed to that and then it just so happened the next day um when it was essentially, you know, my, my play between the two of us, the buck bedded in a good stockable area and the weather was much better. Um, still a little bit of clouds, not a perfect thermal rise day, but this buck, the wind had also shifted and the buck was now on what would be a windward face and it was very windy. So windward face with some thermal aid, 
I was going in for the stock. So I, I we betted the bucks, um, made the loop around the basin, dropped the pack on the backside of the ridge and came over the top and just started easing my way down in as, as physically slow as I could. It was an extremely steep face and it was not shale, but you know where it's that, uh, it's almost that sandy soil with the, the little pebble rocks and stuff. So it's so steep. If you kick up some of that, it, it rolls and, 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 you know, that you hear that a lot up there, but if you do it repetitively, then something's, you don't sound right. You know what I mean? So I just moved down in on them. Um, and there was a rock outcropping that I had picked out that I was going to get to as my ambush spot because I didn't think I could shoot them in the bed, like I said, because it was so thick around their bed. So I, I got to this rock outcropping clean, tucked myself kind of into some cover and just waited them out. And about two to two and a half hours into it, um, I saw this little forky get up and start feeding around. And then about 20 minutes later, the medium buck got up and was feeding around and rebedded kind of more out in the open. And at that point, both of those bucks had milled around quite a bit. And I was thinking, man, that big one's got to get up at some point just to, it had, like I said, at this point I had been sitting on him for at least two and a half hours. And I was thinking there's a good chance he's going to get up to just mill around. And, and about when I was thinking that he stepped out and he stepped out and started feeding towards me. Um, and I was just, he was kind of walking towards me and I was ranging and adjusting my sight, ranging and adjusting my sight. He just kept moving. And then finally he, he had a spot, um, where he kind of stood still for a second. I grabbed a range on him, um, drew back to make the shot. And I felt like I executed just an amazing shot, but, and this is the worst feeling in the world is. You know, I'm pulling through my shot in that last millisecond before it broke, I got hit with a gust of wind. I, did, I don't feel like it blew my arrow um, off track, but it definitely shifted my bow right at the shot. And honestly, I thought I missed the deer. And then I heard the impact and he kicked and ran into the thicker cover. And at that point, I didn't really know what happened because, like I said, I knew it had blew me a little off my mark. And he was facing to the left. It blew me to the right and I heard it hit him and it didn't have that pop like lungs, uh, lungs and ribs diaphragm. It was, I thought I hit him back and he actually stepped back out into the avalanche chute that I was watching, but way further down the mountain. And I saw the hit, um, and it was quite back and he bedded again. I, made another this was over the course of quite a while i'm kind of quickening it for, for the sake of the story but he rebedded i knew the shot was lethal um but i wanted to get another one in him if i could so i made another move down the mountain on him and he got up before i could get to where i wanted to get to to shoot um and he was walking into the timber and i took a pretty far follow-up shot just to try to get another one in him um at the time I thought I missed him on the follow-up shot and he ran he, that, at that point he ran down into some timber and I backed out at that point, went back, uh, talked to the other hunter because he was still glassing all of this. And he told me that after that second shot, the buck only ran about 30 to 40 yards and laid down in a patch of timber, um, a very small patch. 
So we watched that patch the entire evening until dark, and he never came out. So we decided to, to just go back in the next morning to try to recover him. And just as we hoped, you know, we found him right there in that patch. There was another one of those generational deer beds in that patch that he got to and laid down um, and expired right there. And the shot was actually better than I thought it was um, on both accounts. The initial shot, it did get blown back. My elevation was perfect, but it was a, a slightly quartering away shot where it caught some intestines on the way in and then transitioned to liver about midway and exited through the liver. And I didn't realize I hit liver, um, you know, on the exit. Cause when I saw the shot after the shot, I only saw the entry. So I thought it was a straight intestinal hit. Um, but the liver I would say was definitely the primary cause of mortality. And then the second shot, um, actually did also catch him in the liver. So, both arrows end up being way better than I thought they were, um, and he expired quickly. But super cold that night, nothing got into him, so all the meat was fine. But yeah, we found him the next morning, and it was it was really cool because he, you know, um, this other hunter, his name's Eli, and he he was like, "Do you want help recovering him and packing him out?" And I said, "I I, I don't want to take any time from your hunt, but I also understand that." you know, you may feel somewhat vested in this now too, you know, as we are together. So if, if you want to, you know, absolutely. And, and he ended up saying, you know, I, I want this box special and we decided to hunt him together. So I want to be there. And we found him together and took pictures together. And he helped me uh, pack the deer out about a mile and a half um, up to the top of the range to where, you know, I had a, a handful of miles at that point left, but it was, mostly downhill at that point I, I got the rest of it over the next day and a half out the deer in camp all out by myself but and then it was uh to top it off this was just the coolest part was you know I told him I said man you helped me out here's the intel that I had and I kind of gave him everything I had and I said this was where I was headed to this is why and um this was the only big buck in that area that either of us had found. And we covered a lot of basins between the two of us. So he ended up going over to that area and two days later killed another really, really good deer right where I was headed to. So, and he said it was the biggest deer they found over there. So, you know, I love the story, not just because I came out of it with this awesome buck, but because, you know, we worked together and we both got awesome bucks. And instead of fighting each other, we just put our heads in, and tactics and glass together and both came out with awesome bucks from the unit from a tough unit so that's that's the story of it and and like i said there's a lot of things that you know didn't get told but it that's the gist of it and honestly just an incredible hunt an incredible experience man that's beautiful Good on him. He got a good karma buck for uh, helping out, working together, and a good deer, uh, nonetheless. You know, from your intel as well. That's um, it's so great when uh, you can work together with guys. And it seems like most people you do meet on the mountain are really respectful. And like, it seems like when bad things happen, it's almost not the intention. Like they didn't know you were there, or uh you know messed you up but didn't know somebody else was sitting on it or didn't know they were making a bad move but 
when you can have a conversation and work together with somebody back there and then it works out for both parties, man, that's as good as it gets. Right. Yeah. And that's, you know, I think we were both super excited and happy um, for me getting the buck that I, that I harvested out there. And, and cause like I said, I feel like we did it together. Um, but I'm not going to lie. I, it was an incredible feeling when I got a message from him, you know, a handful of days later with a picture of him and, and that buck. And it's, you know, it was actually his first mule deer and it's, it's another really, really good deer. I mean, for, it was his first mule deer hunt, first mule deer. And it's, it is a, another stud buck. So I was just so elated for him. Um, you know, it's kind of hard to describe. It's funny just, just how happy I was for him, you know, sitting miles and miles and miles away back at home. But yeah, it's just, it's my favorite hunt I've been on. Um, I've wanted to, to have a successful high country muley hunt with my bow on a mature, like really, really solid buck for a lot of years. And that's, that's really the goal that I've been chasing more than anything else out West and for it to just come together not just for me, but also for him and, and just the way it all came together. Just it's something that I will never forget. Oh, man. Yeah, it's unreal. And um, what a Bach, too. Uh, yeah, just a testament to your hard work and dedication and learning the craft, learning this new species of mule deer and then to kill him in such an extreme environment. Like it was so smart of you that first day it's so tough to hold off and not make a play on an animal, especially you've got another guy in there now. Uh, you know where the buck is. He's bedded in there. It like takes real discipline to really wait on those plays, but it, it pays dividends in the end to make these smart, intelligent plays. And like these animals are so tough to harvest. Like, you know, you've had your four years or more, you know, after these animals, like you just can't make these half-hearted plays and expect to be successful. Like uh, everything has to be perfect. And and the, the wind is such a major component of that. And I found myself like during this um, elk season, like being really patient, like uh, – locating these bulls and this you know this bull is bugling his head off till 10 30 in the morning but at nine o'clock the thermal started to switch at nine o'clock this bull's in some thick downfall timber i just know that this is turning into a low percentage play and so you know i opted to not go chase him in there even though he's continuing to bugle like i've just learned over the years that i'm better off playing these high percentage plays you know having everything in my favor and holding off on a stock and 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 sometimes it doesn't work out like this bull you know in hindsight the bull got up in the evening and and i expected to kill him in the evening with a downhill thermal in a feeding feature with his cows where i could make a play and in the evening he just took off rolling mountains and then I was on the chase trying to keep up with him and it didn't work out that time but I just know in bow hunting that when I make these these calculated plays and I start playing these high percentages like it's not going to work out every time and sometimes I'm not going to get a play or I'm going to lose him which could have happened on your buck if you know that guy would have dropped in and spooked him out of the basin but if you just play him that way where it's like 
you know, where you're going to get a high percentage good chance of killing him, more times than not, you end up killing that deer, that that bull. So, you know, just kudos to you, like like really waiting to make your play on that quality buck. And you can't wait forever. Like you can't wait for a week to make one play. Like eventually you've got to go all in. But being able to recognize that their heads are all pointed in different directions, realizing that you have these storm fronts that are coming in that are really messing with the winds and just making that decision of like, no, I'm I'm not going to go in today. This just doesn't feel right. That was such like a huge move and a huge part of you killing that buck. Yeah. And I've noticed with multiple species, um, you know, for me, the biggest reason that I want to get away from hunting pressure is because if there's pressure around, whether it's subconscious or needed, you play too aggressive, in my opinion. At least I do. I do. Um, or I want to. And then it's, you know, it gets into that, well, I'm either going to blow him out or someone else is going to blow him out. And then you make plays that you know in your heart is not the play to make. So I would, in my experience, for me personally, I would rather hunt an area with less target animals and have one or two really good plays in a week than have extremely half-hearted plays or rushed plays every day of the week, for me personally. Because like you said, when those stars do align, more often than not, you can get an arrow in that animal. But if the if if the, if the factors aren't there to make a great stock, way more often than not, you don't, and you blow them out. And and that's to me the biggest reason I like just to get, to try to get away from people is because I can make my own plays, my own decisions, and, and play a buck or a bull, whatever way. I want to and not be externally influenced by the chance of other people haphazardly running in there, which then kind of forces me subconsciously to want to haphazardly run in there myself. And that just goes and that turns into this whole mental game that I just don't like to play with myself on the mountain. I like to sit on the mountain and look at an animal and just play my own mental game between me and him, if that makes sense. Yep. Same. It's like, um, getting away from the the hunting pressure is such a major part of my strategy. Like I don't want to combat hunt and I've hunted some units that are great units that I've taken good bucks out of that I don't return to because of that, because you know, there's too much hunting pressure. It, I can't run my own game. And, and to be honest, I'd rather chase smaller animals than I would bigger animals during high pressure. Like just for the experience too, is like, I just like to be on my own and be able to run my own program. So I'm similar to you where I'll hunt lower densities or I'll hunt, um, you know, I'll implement different strategies. And whether that's putting a bunch of miles in elevation behind me, whether that's showing up a few days after opener, there's some great units that I hunt that have, you know, opening weekend pressure. And then after that, the pressure really wanes, you know, or everybody takes their vacation the first week. And I'd rather go the second or the third week, even though the bucks may be tougher to hunt that time of year. They may be getting into secondary living. Like I can just run my own program and I can hunt my own hunt. And I also find, too, that a lot of these animals after the hunt begins, 
you know, like I hunt high pressure units for elk, but these elk seem to find places where the pressure are not like where the, the elk are where the humans are not. And so even in high pressure units, I can tend to get away from the people and get into these elk with more effort or more headlamp work. And, and also it's like being in these locations at the right time. And especially elk hunting, man, I've seen these guys coming over the ridge at 10, 11 o'clock in the morning and bugling, and they may be in a drainage with a 350 inch class bull, but that bull has been put away for two hours and hasn't made a peak. Like they don't even know he's there because they're not in there at the right time where, you know, I had my headlamp and was grinding in at 4:30 in the morning and chased him in the morning and put him to bed. And so there's like a lot of tactics that can be implemented there, but that that hunting pressure is such a huge component of us public land hunters. And, you know, for the most part, I mean, almost entirely, I'm able to get such a quality experience in these units hunting these animals and able to make my own hunt just by um, my strategy of trying to stay away from that pressure, you know, uh, in my hunt plan. But it just makes for such a better experience and then such a greater chance at success as well. Yeah, I totally agree with you there. Um, and like you said, it can be miles in elevation or, you know, with the whitetail thing on the, on the flip side of the spectrum, it's very, very rarely miles. And it's honestly very rarely effort um, for public land whitetail, you know, I would say 90% of the available public land, at, at least in the most of the eastern or midwestern region, um, you know, getting outside some of like the eastern mountains where you truly can use miles to get back in there. But most of it, it's your brain, not your legs that separate you. And the more I hunt out west, the more I'm recognizing that it's really the same thing, just on a bigger scale, where with whitetail, you know, sometimes it's a tiny, tiny scale. But if you use your brain to get away from people, then you can really, then you can hunt spots that no one ever hunts. And you can hunt spots that people would laugh at you for hunting. And then you're dragging a big buck out that night after dark, you know, out of the spot that they laughed at you for hunting. And uh, I've done that a lot successfully for whitetail. And the more that I'm, I'm Western hunting, the more I'm trying to adapt that mentality to the scale of the west and i'm starting to see these similarities with any species where you can use your brain to outwork a lot of people rather than only your legs and when you can use your brain and legs together is when you can really really get away from them that's such a great point ethan i think you're right like there's so many guys that are going so hard nowadays that you're right it is like a lot of your brain that does it. You know, I see all these guys that are putting so much effort in and somehow I'm able to find more success. And, you know, sure, it's due to, to work ethic and, and effort and uh, in the mountains, but it's not always miles. Like a lot of it is is strategy or knowledge. Like you located that buck from a master vantage point. Like a lot of times just having better vantage points, being there at the right times, finding these folds, putting in the e-scouting, you know, the, the more experience that you gain, the more knowledge that you gain, the more powerful it is, like the more you know what's going on in the mountains. And so you're able to adapt your strategy to it. And the more knowledge you have, like you're totally right, man, you're spot on. Like that is what's separating us is, is using our brain. And that is what a lot of times gets us away from the pressure. And 
not every buck or bull I kill is a million miles away from the road or a trail. Like uh, sometimes it's just knowing where elk or deer or antelope or whatever it is where they prefer where they like and then locating and know knowing they're in there and you know this year i just killed a bull and i mean to be honest this bull is not that far back in and there's hunting pressure way back in the back end of the drainage but this low spot is able to locate this bull by uh listening at night and hearing his growl of a bugle and it's where nobody was targeting him and so you know i had him all to my own when the lights came on um and a lot of that was just strategy and knowledge and experience where i'm able to not go where everybody else is and know where a bull is that nobody knows where he is so man you're you're so right on the money like i love how you've taken like all this white tail knowledge and been able to apply it out west and there's a handful of guys like you that are are really smart in the western world by using all that strategy man it's um uh such a great tactic for out west yeah, and, and like I said, the scale is really the biggest difference, and the game density is another very big difference. Um, throughout most of whitetail habitat and country, through, you know, I've hunted a, a decent bit of locations and states throughout the country for whitetail, and it seems like the density is so much higher. Now, I've hunted some very low-density whitetail stuff in the mountains out east, but generally it's almost every pocket of cover you walk into you're going to bump up a whitetail i mean almost every pocket of cover in a lot of places and that was a huge learning curve getting out west hunting bucks and bulls where it's like they might only be in one out of every 10 and you're not talking a hundred yard patch of cover I mean, you're talking a three mile long basin that you know i mean it it's incredible sometimes the lack of density and um it's it just plays back into the scale thing you know it's the same mindset and the same thinking just on a such a bigger scale and another difference is with the whitetail you don't need the legs you don't need i don't want i i don't want to say this out, out of wrong context but a lot of times you don't need the fitness you only need the brain i mean i've killed i have killed a lot of whitetail like mature whitetail within 200 yards of a road. So, I mean, you, you don't need it as much, but when you, when you transition to such a bigger scale out West, you do need the fitness. And that was honestly kind of a turning point for me in my personal life. Um, you know, four or five years ago when I started doing it, it, it really turned a point in my life where, you know, fitness has now become, you know, just an instrumental part of my daily and it's it's truly for you know bow hunting in the west and it's it's just made me a better person overall and i don't know man it's just i mean getting a little off the original topic but it's it's just changed my life forever dude that's beautiful i love it man it's uh makes me a better person as well you know it gives me purpose and something to work towards and um yeah uh that's really interesting what you say like i really like the point that you're making and and also with whitetails you may not have to have the legs but you still have to have the grit right you got to have the knowledge but you got to be able to go day after day after day and you have to be able to go sit after sit and and go and not see deer but uh, like what you're saying out west makes so much sense like our densities 
there's not game everywhere. In fact, there's a lot of places where they're not. Like the scale of it that you're talking about, like our game is not spread out throughout the country or throughout the the unit. It's like in those pockets of the unit. So you have to be really good at finding those pockets. Now you came into this hunt really well prepared to go search out those pockets. Like you said it at the beginning of your story is that you were prepared to cover country to turn up these bucks. And so, you know, you were going to use your legs to look at a lot of different places before you could find that bachelor herd of bucks because like you said they could only you know you could look at 15 drainages but only one of them holds a bachelor herd of bucks and i think where a lot of guys make mistakes is e-scouting they get convinced where they're going to see bucks instead of looking at a lot of likely country so they kind of choose these couple drainages that look good or this one drainage and they backpack into that drainage and then when they don't find the deer they don't know where to turn where your strategy was like you looked at a bunch of different places and you thought well i'm gonna have to check out all these places until i find those bucks and i think that's the correct strategy and that that strategy uh, uh, goes into uh, a factor uh, plays a huge role for hunting deer and hunting elk is like you have to determine this likely country that they may be and then you got to get in there and see which country they like and it's you know those master vantage points it's seeing them with elk it's also hearing them and then also paying attention to the sign whether it's fresh tracks whether it's rubs beds trails whatever it is like trying to pay attention to those signs because really the vantage points like you can glass up deer middle of the day for sure and especially in that alpine environment that early season but really you got that 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 morning glassing session and that evening glassing session are really your times to turn them up and so there's a lot of time in the middle of the day where if you're paying attention to the signs you can definitely find likely spots and then also just hunting enough muley country and enough, enough elk country to recognize those basins or those bucky features where it's like oh i better sit this for a prime time there might be one come up but uh it's like such a good strategy that you've developed in such a short amount of time and i think it goes back to that that knowledge again like all that time and experience of hunting whitetails as i would i would think that what is similar about hunting these mule deer hunting you know whitetails is like whitetails get really good at living in their habitat the same way elk or mule deer do and i think that's what you've been able to key into yeah, and I would agree with that. I think there's so many differences between a whitetail and a mule deer, but there are some similarities. And, and one of the big ones is like you're saying is they carve out a living in these pockets. And when I'm I'm not talking public land, you know, bucks, whether it's mule deer, uh, whitetail, whether it's at the tops of the mountains, in the plains, or in someone's backyard on the east coast. Once a buck gets mature. He didn't get there by chance, not on public land. You know, that buck has carved out a living in, in some small pocket and, and outside of the rut never leaves, maybe not that pocket, but he's always in a pocket of security and safety. And if he wasn't, he'd be dead by now. So it's like, that's how they make a living. And once you recognize that, then it's just finding the pockets and and with whitetail i think it's it's more finding the right buck in a pocket where with mule deer it's, it goes back to the density thing where it's like you have to find the pocket to begin with um so and the scale like i said is just so different you know uh, a buck in my experience a mule deer might 
have a bassin that he likes or or a bassin or two or three in this kind of this area he really knows well but i have seen whitetail outside of the rut literally live in you know maybe 100 acres for the year and that and that's not that's not the rule um that's more of the exception but i've seen them just stay so tight and they don't have to migrate so they can just live in such a tiny pocket which makes them very difficult to hunt because imagine you know imagine just living in that almost almost the entire year how intimate you are with every tree and every leaf and trail you know and then here we are we're coming from this human society and everyday world and we're not we're not um you know as much as we like to be submerged in and we're not submerged into the way they are and we're we're going into their home in this little pocket and it makes it just so difficult to actually find success that way and when you do it is it is so gratifying knowing that this buck knew every inch of this like the back of his hand and I was somehow able to outsmart him and put myself in a position to get an arrow in this buck. And that's just one of the most gratifying feelings, especially with whitetail, like I said, just because of the just tiny scale that they can live on. That's the ultimate challenge for sure. They get so good at living in a small habitat and being um, so good at surviving in that habitat. And a lot of times, like you said, they can be 200 yards from a road or 200 yards from a farmhouse and they still go undetected, you know, throughout the year. Uh, so it's the ultimate to be able to outsmart them. And you're right, like coming from our human civilization, like, you know, I'm always big about noises and whispering, whether I've got a cameraman or a buddy with me. It's like, man, I hear so many voices in the woods. It seems like if there's any hunters around, like I can hear them and detect them way before, you know, like I ever see them or ever like they can just come over the ridge and it's just humans, you know. And I also notice like, you know, I'm starting to key into like I've always known that I smell elk and it smells elky. And, you know, maybe it was yesterday or maybe it was today, but really like keying into that smell and slowing down like um, when I'm smelling those elk. But it makes me realize if elk smell that strong to where I can smell them a day ago, like what do we smell like to those animals <laughs> that have 10 to 100 times the sense of smell that we do? And so like for those white tails, like. Even if you're in there walking their trails, you know, or taking a pee by a tree or whatever the case is, it just has to smell so much like humans were there and put those bucks on edge and change their habits, you know. And that goes for mule deer and elk, too. Like, I'm sure they smell us in their zones and in through there. So, like, really trying to be low impact. And with those muleys, like, everything has to be low impact. Like, you can screw up your opportunity so easy by skylining yourself, by walking in the open by like there's all these things that 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 you just show your presence and you can lose your opportunity to stock a great buck or even find a great buck just by like showing yourself and so in the mountains like we have to work so hard to have this low impact and not diving right where they are until it's time and uh, to be able to look from afar and not skyline ourselves and it's tough when you're trying to cover country and glass but I can't tell you how many mistakes I've made where it's like, hurry up and get to that edge so I can get a good vantage point. And there's a buck standing there looking at me, you know, and, and a lot of this habitat is tough to, to go low impact, but it, it's something that we have to always remember. And even though, 
you know, you may have to look over 10 drainages before you want, find the one that has the buck. You have to treat all 10 of those like those bucks are in there. And, and it gets tough to be like that disciplined in the mountains. But the moment that you lose focus, you like get busted by one of those things and mess up a good opportunity. Yeah, I've been there. And, and something that you said that I've keyed in on majorly is the voice. And I hunt solo a lot, so it helps, It you know. Because I've hunted with guys and I've hunted solo primarily. And I've noticed that you're always talking. You're always talking when you're with someone, right? You know, even if it's a whisper. But I feel like in my experience, what I've done, the mistakes that I've made is that's it's easier for me to talk that's not a a super quiet whisper than it is for me to skyline myself. Because I know skylining yourself is this big red stoplight on top of the ridge like don't go there don't do this but it's so easy to look at your buddy and just say one sentence that's just a little too loud and yeah i mean i i've blown deer out doing that and it's just it's like what a rookie mistake you know like i know this and and i think you know this past time before i killed this buck like i said there was quite a bit of recreation in the area and i could hear these people talking and i was amazed at how far away they are and I just, you know, it, that's something that has just has really clicked in the last year and a half. Really, really clicked is just how far our voices can carry, and, you know, especially when it's just a calm, cold, clear day. Those voices can carry. And, you know, and that's to my tiny little ears, let alone a mule deer. You know, they've adapted over thousands of years to be able to hear a pin drop behind them. And so it's, yeah, that's a, a huge factor that I just need to remember, especially when I'm hunting with someone else, to just stay as quiet as possible at all times. Oh, so quiet. Yeah, and I've been busted a couple times in close with whispers, including this season, like, um, you know, in close to the buck I want to shoot at 64 and another buck beds at 40. And, like, I'm not sure if my cameraman can see him or not bedded at 40, and he's looking in our direction. And so, you know, I go to whisper to tell him, hey, no movement or whatever. And this is after 40 minutes of holding still. And I'm still not sure if the buck caught movement or heard me whisper. It was one of the two. And, you know, I was even covering my mouth and pointed. And then I had one, like, a couple years ago with my buddy Dylan that, I snuck into bow range of, and he was filming for me, and I I covered my mouth, and I had, I told him he's in between the trees, and it was his, such a quiet whisper, and that buck whipped his head around and heard that voice, and then it blew up, and I didn't get the shot, and so, yeah, it's something I need to constantly work on as, too. It's like, uh, you know, once we get into range, there's not even a whisper anymore. Like, you can't even, you know, it's got to be, uh, you can't communicate through voices because they just pick it up with those muley ears for sure so yeah it's uh being low impact i think is such a huge part of it and then just not letting those animals know that you're hunting them like keeping that element of surprise is such a major factor to killing them and no matter what the animal is that we're hunting but once they're on edge or know that they're being hunted it turns into a different game but that element of surprise is huge yeah and i think that in in my experience i learned this with whitetails and i've begun to be able to apply it out west is if you do have to do something that you can recognize is high impact you can take advantage of whatever environment you're in a lot of times where 
you know, the Western example is if there is a lot of recreation in the area and you're on a trail, those deer, they can wrecking, you know, they live around this all the time. So if you need to make a move where you do expose yourself, walk right down the trail, what, you know, make noise, don't stalk, you know, don't hunch over, just, just go and, and purposely show yourself like you don't care, you know, because those deer, they, they recognize that. And I watched it time and time again on this past hunt, just, there was tons of people in the greater area, but there was nobody right where this buck was, but he can listen to it from a mile away across the basin. He can, you know, see people skylining themselves, you know, way up on top of the mountain. And I think as long as you can recognize that you can play that to your advantage so heavily. And I've done it so many times with the whitetail, because like I said, they're a lot of times their cool range is just so small. There might be a, a walking trail or a road that's on the edge of it or something. If you can just play off of that where you can monitor the deer from those quote high impact spots that they don't associate with danger, then you are able to get in close enough to learn the animal without tipping them off, you know? And, it, and like I said, I've, I've started to try to actually look for opportunities to play that in my Western hunting as well where they, they are just so tuned in and smart with their surroundings and they know what danger is and what danger is. And you can trick them. Like you can trick them, you know, at their own game doing that. I hadn't thought about that, Ethan. You're right. Like I got to get, um, I got to get my hippie sweatshirt on like a bright red sweatshirt and just walk down the trail. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that, but as you're saying it, like I have noticed it with antelope, like as you're, as you're driving, like they get used to rigs and vehicles, but the moment you stop to look at them, they run, they know that you're paying attention to them. But if you just keep driving like you're a normal person or recreator out there, they pay no attention to you whatsoever. So you can drive by them and then, you know, bail out after you're around the corner and then make a, make a, uh, an educated play at them or try to circle around them. But yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. That's a good strategy. Yeah, like I said, I've played it with whitetail, and, and and it's definitely not like my primary strategy going into a hunt, but it's something to be able to recognize in the moment that you could potentially use to your advantage. And I think the moment that it really clicked with me was I hunted a unit last year that's pretty heavy with recreation and really heavy with hunting pressure, really heavy with hunting pressure. Um, and I watched a really, really mature buck bed a few hundred yards off a trail in a, in a not super stockable spot. Um, but I, I was way across this massive basin on a master advantage. And I watched this buck bed just a few hundred yards off a trail. And I watched people walk down this trail, ride horses down this trail. I mean, it, and they, I could hear them talking and laughing and that buck just laid in this patch of willow brush and never moved. And it was so eye opening, you know, because we are we try to just be, you know, as quiet and sneaky as possible, which you have to be to actually get an arrow in them. But you can cover country in the right areas so fast and so quickly. And, and like I said, if you have to make a move where, you know, you have to expose yourself. If you slow down and creep, you know, now they know. But if you're just walking and they live out there day in and day out with this. And like I said, I think I I just recognize that right away because of the whitetail thing you know I've, I've just seen it happen my entire life so 
you know, these animals, they're just so tuned in with their environment and, and they know that people can be danger, but they also know that not every human is always danger. Otherwise they would have nowhere to go. The whitetails wouldn't, they'd have nowhere to go if that's the case. So they adapt, they adapt to their surroundings and they, they recognize who's danger and who's not. And if you recognize that, you can use that to your advantage in the field. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes sense, man. Yeah. Um, dude, uh, what a buck. Uh, really glad that I got to get you on the podcast. You have such an intelligent approach to um, to all your hunting and especially Western hunting. Well, whitetails as well. But uh, yeah, I'm able to pick up uh, tidbits from you. And um, man, I just um, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. I really enjoyed it, man. Yeah, I appreciate it, Brian. Like I said, I um, just really, really deeply appreciate it. I've listened to it a long time, trying to learn about the mule deer. So being able to take a, an amazing buck and be on here and talk to you about it and, and you know, bucks in general, it's just been awesome. It's, uh, it's my pleasure. I appreciate it. Oh, man. Uh, what a buck. Congratulations again. And, um, yeah, thanks, Ethan. Let's uh, keep in touch. You've got my number. And, um, man, good luck for the rest of your season. Yeah, you too, Brian. Good luck. Okay. Thanks, buddy. All right, guys, that's a wrap. Uh, Thanks again to Ethan for being on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Thanks again to our sponsors. I want to thank Sig Sauer, OnX, Black Ovis, and Camo Fire. Uh, Again, if you want to save that 10% at Black Ovis, just put in the promo code ELEVATED10. And uh, promo code for the Mule Deer course is BrianMDC. And for Tag Hub, it's Brian. So uh, that's our promo codes for now. And, um, man, with that, just, um, finishing up my elk season here. So get a little break in the action, able to get my garage kind of picked up and, um, get some construction work done and try to get ahead of the game. Uh, so yeah, looking to get out and start chasing some mule deer here. Also, I've got my buddy, Dan, he's coming over, should be here arriving at my house here in the next 20 minutes or so. But, uh, yeah, he's still hunting elk, so we'll help him out a bit and, um, hopefully try to get him a bull down and, um, Man, keep pushing. It's um, nice that we're into fall. Really excited for mule deer season here. I got a couple late season tags, so uh, try to get in there where the weather's good and maybe some pre-rut action, and then um, I got some good rut hunts as well. So just trying to put in my time so then I can disappear uh, once I get a chance to go chase these things around. So really looking forward to that. And um, man, yeah, uh, getting back to to running and making sure I'm shooting just really want to keep up on my shooting this season is like it always comes down to making a shot so just trying to get those arrows in day in day out and it's tough when I'm hunting elk every day or hunting so much um, but still getting those arrows in and now that I have a little break in the action just making sure that I'm getting back to sending a bunch of arrows down range and make sure that I'm sharp coming into this late season so yeah working on that and um yeah, just getting through some work and trying to spend some quality time with the family and uh, get myself set to go take off and chase some more critters around. So, um, yeah, get some podcasts recorded. I'm down to uh, very few recordings, so I want to make sure I've got good content for you guys coming out. Got to get with Dan Picard and um, record that one. Uh, again, that podcast, that other podcast we're doing is the Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal, Life of a Bow Hunter. You can check that out. Um, doing that with Dan Picard. We put out one every couple weeks. 
Uh, really like that podcast. And uh, last week was a solo episode. Just wasn't able to connect with Dan as we've both been hunting so much. But um, yeah, we're scheduled this week to get on and get some recordings. And um, man, I'm really looking forward to catching up to Dan as he's had a heck of a season and uh, arrowed another great bull and his buddy killed a great bull. And um, so pumped for that guy and want to hear how his season's gone. So it'd be good to catch up to him. So you can check out that podcast and um, check out everything we're doing over there at Eastman's. So with that, guys, uh, leave you for this week. I'll check in with you guys next week. Thanks again for uh, all the reviews on the um, uh, podcast platforms. It really helps the algorithm and also the shares on social media. Uh, means the world to me. Um, keep trying to get you guys some good information for season, and hopefully you guys had some good adventures this year. So um, with that, check in with you guys next week. <laughs>